Well, after a five-week pause, last week we jumped back into the book of 1 Corinthians or the New Testament letter called 1 Corinthians in a series called Letter to the Church, Volume 2. So if you would, grab a Bible. There are a few Bibles in front of you. And uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 is on page 1636 in your pew Bibles, but would love for you to have a copy of Scripture, either physically or digitally, so you can track along with the text that we're reading. We'll be breaking it up throughout the sermon. Uh, but First uh, Corinthians is a letter written to the church in Corinth, as you can see, that it's named this ancient Greek city uh, where the early Christians were getting uh, sidetracked. The early Christians were getting sidetracked. They were distracted and had been focusing on the wrong things. And so the letter is really meant to help them address those things. They would no longer be sidetracked, but they would be unified. They'd be on the same page, on the same mission by the ways that they lived together. And so one of the questions that they had to wrestle with in the early church as you have this group of Christians, these sort of first-generation Christ followers after the death and resurrection of Jesus, is how do you take these people from a bunch of different backgrounds with a bunch of different expectations and desires, with different preferences and different levels of education and understanding and get them to focus together on the right things? It reminds me of uh, back five years ago when CPC was going through a senior pastor transition, they did, we did lots of work with the congregation to survey what matters to you, what's important to you about CPC. And overwhelming, actually, one of the things that came back d- delightfully and surprisingly was that this idea that intergenerational, having people of all ages at our church is our superpower. That it is a superpower for our church to, to, to coexist, to be able to, to lead together, to be able to, to have a, a vibrant flourishing church with people of all generations, that that was something that was really important to us. And, and it does get at the question of how do you take people with different preferences and from different, different generations and with different expectations and different experiences and different levels of education, and how do you help what could potentially be seen as a source of disunity instead be a source of transformation? Is it possible that, that what could feel like a burden would instead feel like a superpower. In, the, in, in this note today, the, the part of the letter we see today, we see that the Apostle Paul wants them to see that perhaps their superpower is to understand that goodness includes others. That if they want to get to the goodness of God in their midst and in their lives, that it always includes others. And, and I, there's this obvious sort of Christian, like, we need each other, and that's part of this text, but that's not the only thing. Like, you might be thinking that my... My faith is private. You know, I prefer to do this alone. Or, or maybe you think, like, I, I have a bunch of friends and family. I don't really need more friends. Thank you very much. Um, but I think what we're going to see is that the goodness uh, and the grace of God always includes others. And it works two ways. On the one hand, maybe God has some people in your life that he wants to use for you to experience transformation. Maybe he wants to have some people in your life that he wants to use to challenge you, to push you, to ask good questions that you might grow because of their presence in your life. But he might also have you in someone else's life that they might experience transformation or something that he's doing, possibilities to be open through your presence in their lives. Goodness includes others. We can get so stuck 
on ourselves. We can become so self-reliant or self-impressed that we need others to help us experience the fullness of a life where we're learning daily to transfer trust from ourselves to Jesus. So we're going to pick up in uh, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12, and see what he says about what it means for us to include others in our lives. And remember, we, we turn to Scripture because God's Word has the capacity to change us and stick with us far greater than any clever thing that I might say. And so God's word is central to who we are as a people. So verse 12 says, Just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we are all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body. No matter our differences, whether Jew or Gentile, slave or free, young or old, we are all given this one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. So let's pause right there. Culturally, we use the word body to describe a group of people that have something in common. You might even say that they have a common identity that they think will lead to something better they could do together rather than apart. Probably the most common use of it in our society now is the word student body. So like our family was just in Chicago over the last three days, and we took college tours with our high school junior, and I got to hear a lot about student bodies. I also got to feel old, um, and I got to feel the, the overwhelming emotions of imagining your oldest child leaving home, right? It was a, it was a very meaningful week for, for me. I don't know about my, for my daughter, but it was meaningful for me. We heard a lot about student bodies, though, and what made each student body unique and why a, a prospective student should come to this or that student body, now, the word body as a metaphor can be used to say something encouraging like, hey, we're all on the same team. We're in this together. We're working towards something good. There's something better that's possible together. But it can also be used in a negative way. Like At its worst, the word body could be used to say, uh, hey, let's, let's all get in line here. It could, enforce, uh, it could enforce uniformity at the expense of personal growth or diversity, and so we, we use the word body to use, mean a lot of different things, but unity in the church, unity in Christ, in the body of Christ, uh, is not about uniformity. It's not about all being the same. It's about being unified around the same motivation. And he says that we are unified and motivated by the Spirit, he says, check out two quick things he says. We are baptized into one spirit, which means that we are included. Baptism is a word for inclusion. We are included, meaning we all come in through the same path. None of us deserves it more than the other. None of us earns it more than the other. We all come in through one way. We come in on a level footing. We are included through the spirit. And then he says that we, are also, we also drink of one spirit. Like we are daily sustained by we are encouraged by, we daily walk in, we find power, not in our own abilities, not in who we are out in the world. We find our unification, we find our motivation, we find who we are in Christ because the Spirit is the one who sustains us, not anything clever or powerful or creative or amazing that we can do on our own. And so it's possible 
for the body of Christ, for the church to be unified, but it's not about our abilities. It's not about our ability to play by the spoken or the unspoken rules. It's not about our ability to keep everyone happy, to make sure everyone gets what they want, to try to be a peacekeeper. It's about being unified because of what Christ has done and is doing in us. We are one body. And then it says, there are many of us. So let's pick back up in verse 15, where he goes on to use maybe one of the wackiest metaphors you could possibly imagine. Uh, He says, if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. Verse 17, if the whole body were an eye, just pause right there. I mean, no, no offense to your, some of you have lovely eyes, but that would be a gross, if the whole body were just one big eye, like that's, it's really weird. Where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, same thing. Imagine if, some, if you were like hanging out with a friend and they were just like one big ear. It's not cool. Again, some of your ears are lovely. Where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? If we didn't have each other, where would we be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. There are many parts, but there's one body. We need each other in our differences more than we think. So I have the privilege of serving as senior pastor here. I get to work with an amazing staff, and and part of that staff that I work most closely with is what's called our lead team or our executive team, Um, and it's made up of three people that I work with closely, uh, Mara Amiat, Jonathan Hicks, and Corey Gregory, and and they serve in different capacities. But what I love about working with the three of them is that we all act differently, Like, we all have different personalities, we all have different gifts, we all have different things that motivate us, and that helps a ton in the way that we lead together and think through problems and things that we need to work on as a church. And so what's really fun is some of us are quiet, and some of us are more uh, loud, some of us are quick to talk, and some of us are quick to sit back and process, right? Some of us have strong opinions on things, and some of us can be really go with the flow. Some of us are good with numbers, and some of us are not, right? Like, we have different gifts, and we need each other, and we're better as leaders because we don't try to just do it all on our, on our own, but that we rely on and get to work with each other. They balance me out, that even though as a leader, sometimes it's compelling to think that I could just do it on my own or it'd be a lot faster if I just did it on my own, they balance me out and it's better with others. Goodness includes others. I get a chance to walk alongside of them as they build me up and vice versa. In, in the family of God, inside of the church, we get a chance to walk alongside of others in our need and be built up by them. God has gifted others to help you experience the fullness of his grace in unexpected ways. We need others who are not us and who are not like us to build us up. We need the humility to say, I need others. This is why as a church that that we've talked about, if we wanna be open to the gospel, we need relationships. We need spiritual companions who walk alongside of us and encourage us and help us identify the places where we're weak, they encourage us, they support us in our, in our times of doubt, in our times of need. 
and we get to walk alongside of them as well. We need each other. God has others in your life to stretch you, and he has you in others' lives to stretch them as well. Pick back up in verse 21. It says, the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty. While our presentable parts need no special treatment, but God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that, eats, but, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. Pause right there. You see, God may have you in the lives of others to lift them up, even though you don't even know that they need it at the time, that God might have you in the lives of those who are, maybe they're just feeling less honorable. Maybe they're just feeling unneeded. Maybe they're feeling unimportant. Maybe God has you in their life to lift them up. To illustrate this, I want you to see a really, really short video clip uh, of an interview between uh, David Letterman and Taylor Swift. And, and what you need to know about this interview clip is she's just described how she, in, she was in New York and she backed into a car. She was in her car. She backed into another car. And, and the person she backed into was the bass player in her, in her backup band. So watch this clip. This is okay. It's fine. It's a fender bender, whatever. I turn around and it's my bass player. So oh, that was well, there you go. Better, yeah, so. because we know uh, backup musicians have no insurance. Mine do. Oh, do they? Good. Yeah. Good. You heard Letterman, who said, backup musicians have no insurance. And Taylor Swift, without judgment, says, mine do. Right? What an amazing clip, right? So if, when he says, you know, that's like the common way of thinking in big music concert Hollywood land is that, that those unimportant people, those, irrepla- those replaceable parts, they don't get the same benefits as the star does, right? And yet, what Taylor's actions, and even like you've heard some of the stories coming out of her, of her Eras tour, of her paying bonuses to her truck drivers and taking care of her musicians and her roadies and all these people, is that you're not just a backup musician. You're not just a backup dancer. You're worthy of the same benefits as the star of the show. In, in our world, we celebrate the powerful and the beautiful and the successful. But in the kingdom of God, You're not just a pinky. You're not just a big toe. You're not just a kneecap. You're important. You're just as important as whatever impressive body part you want to pick. You're worthy of full benefits, and you have something to contribute Goodness in the kingdom of God includes everybody, it includes others. And here's the thing, it's not good if it works for you, but not for the rest of the body. It's not good if it works for you, but not for the rest of the body. If you're getting what you want out of it, but it's not good for others, you're missing the opportunities to be a full part of the body of Christ. I mean, think of it this way. If it's cold out, and you decide to put on a pair of gloves, but you don't wear a jacket or a hat or shoes, it's good for your hands, it's not good for the body. 
if it's sunny out and you don't want to get sunburned and, but, and you put on sunglasses, but you don't put on a hat or sunscreen, it's good for your eyes, but it's not good for the body. If you're lactose intolerant, ice cream might taste good for your mouth, but it doesn't feel good in your stomach. It's not good for the body. It's true for our bodies, and it's true for the church. Some of us are getting what we want or what we think we want out of church, but we're leaving so much on the table for ourselves and for others. Because it says, pick it back back up in verse 26. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored or lifted up, every part rejoices with it. You are the body of Christ, and each one of you matters. Each one of you is a part of it. Each one of you has a part to play. Goodness includes you and it includes others. The body of Christ, the body of the one who gave his life, the body of the one who suffered and died on the cross that our sin and our brokenness and our failures and our doubts would not haunt us but we would have life better than any of those things could ever give us because of Christ, not because of anything that we've done. And therefore, his body would be defined by humility and sacrifice and love and forgiveness. That's the body that we're a part of. The body of the one who said, Jesus says this about himself, for even the son of man, even Jesus, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That is the head of the body. That is who we follow. You are the body of Christ and you follow the one who gave his life as a ransom for many. He did not come to be served. It wasn't about him. It was about you. It was about me. It was about us. He also said this, so the last will be first and the first will be last. It perhaps the antidote to the pride and the selfishness and the division that crept into the church in 1 Corinthians and also creeps into our own lives and our own church is lifting up the weak and the unnoticed. Maybe lifting up the weak and the notice is the antidote to that pride and selfishness. And, and for Paul, this isn't just like, don't forget about the little guy. For him, it's like how you treat the least among you says everything about what you believe about them and about yourself and about the God whom you claim to worship. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German theologian and pastor, said the church is the church. The church is the church only when it exists for others. Not dominating, not selfish, but helping and serving. It must tell men of every calling, meaning every one of us, no matter what you do for a day job, what it means to live for Christ, to exist for others. The church is the church. It is good when it exists for others. This is why we talk about the integration of our faith, because it matters so much that you're following Jesus when you find yourself wherever you are in the world, when you go out into the workplace, onto the fields, into the boardroom, wherever you find yourself, into your, into your homes, your faith matters. It makes a difference. The Apostle Paul is addressing the fighting that's happening among these Christians in Corinth, and he's not just like a parent who wants them to take a break. He's not just like, hey guys, can you settle down? Dad wants to watch the football game. 
He's not just trying to get them to take a break from the fighting. Can't you all just get along? His concern is that the way the church lives together is an embodied confession of what they believe. That the church is the post-resurrection family. It's after the, after the death and resurrection of Jesus through which the possibilities of a life with God is meant to be put on display for the world. The way we live together, the way we treat each other, the way we make space for everyone, the way we lift up the unnoticed and the weak, it puts on display for the world what we believe about a life with God, what it's for, who it's for, what it's about at its core. And we cannot receive the blessings of God as individuals or as a church when we're collectively holding on to our selfish ambition or our pride or the abilities that we can do on our, or the things that we can do on our own, our own abilities. It's about seeing that goodness, the goodness of God, it always includes others. If one suffers, if one suffers, make sure to stay away from them. If one suffers, don't let them drag you down. No, we all suffer. If one suffers, we all suffer. If one celebrates, be jealous of them. If one celebrates, try to one-up them. No, if one celebrates, we all celebrate. We all rejoice because goodness includes others. What are you holding on to that's keeping you closed to others in your faith? Where are you not letting others into your life? Where is God calling you to use your gifts to serve others, but you're keeping a distance? You're holding on to something else. What would it look like for you to be open to how the gospel might use you to build up the body through serving others, through using your gifts, through relying on others, through needing others, that you don't have to be God. Let him be God for you and let him transform you as you learn what it means to, to live in light of Christ who has our head, to learn to live in the ways of sacrifice and of humility and of love and of forgiveness. What does it mean to let that be the identity that transforms you? Uh, about a decade ago, we were living in uh, Western North Carolina, and I got invited to join a group of guys for a workout group uh, that was called F3, F3, Fitness, Faith, and Fellowship. Uh, and, and so uh, there were, this is a picture of me and some of the guys. Uh, we, we ran together in a race, and there were over 200 guys in our city that were a part of this workout community. And all, you know, every day of the week, there were different workouts around that you could go and join. But what was really important about it um, was that it was peer-led, uh, so, and, and it was free, so everyone took turns leading, and it was free, and no one paid, no one was a paid leader, and then everyone got a nickname. And I'm not going to share mine right now, um, but, you know, ask me later. And, uh, and, and everyone got a nickname, and the point of everyone getting a nickname was this. Uh, F3's mission was to invigorate male leadership in local communities. So they wanted to help men learn to lead well uh, and lead their peers, even if they weren't leaders in society. Like if they weren't running a company or they didn't have these high-up jobs, they wanted all these men, from, no matter where they came from, to, to grow in their leadership and so, or to be empowered where they were. And so everyone had a nickname. So you could be you know, doing, doing push-ups, 
next to a bunch of guys, and, and all you knew were their nicknames. Like, some of these guys, I don't know their real names. I just know their nicknames. Um, and, and you could be working out next to a grandfather and a parent and a 23-year-old you know, right out of college. You could be working out next to uh, an unemployed person or a blue-collar worker or, uh, or a CFO of a Fortune 500 company. And all those things are true stories. I th- you know, the thing is, the push-up didn't care who was doing it, right? We were all just, we were all just, we were one, and, and we, we weren't who we were out in the world. We were just doing, we were working out together. We were brothers when we were, you know, we were called by these nicknames. And I bring it up because often what happens is whatever space we find ourselves in, we, we bring in our identities from the world. Like whatever striving we've been doing, keeping up with whoever and trying to earn this, achieve that, prove ourselves, we bring our resumes into it. And the point of the nicknames was we put our resumes away and we just got to enjoy each other's presence and grow together. We get to lean on each other together. Well, when we come into the body of Christ, it's tempting to bring our resumes into the door, isn't it? But Paul says that causes divisions every time. Instead, you've been given not nicknames, but you've been called things by God, chosen and beloved and forgiven and gifted. That's who you are in Christ and that's who we are when we come into this space, when we come into the family of God. We know who we are in Christ, that we might be open to receive the goodness that comes when God brings others into our lives. Let's not be close to it. Let's be open to receive the good news of the gospel through others' presence and that our presence might be good news to others as well. Let's pray. Holy God. We come to you asking that you would be at work in each and every one of us, from, from those of us who were excited to come in this morning to those of us who might have been, been drugged here, nudged here a little bit. Um, would you be at work in us? Let your spirit that, that includes us and that motivates and energizes us be at work to remind us that you are good and may we be that goodness to others. May we put that on display for others to see that, that, that we might know that your goodness is real and tangible because others put it on display for us. God, remind us of your great love for us, that as a church and as individuals, we would lay our lives before you and trust that you have something far greater than we could ever get on our own. We love you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.